Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday and the impeachment trial is wrapping up. Even as we're speaking, the Trump lawyers are blaming everything on Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And there's a lot of whataboutism. We may get to that a little bit later. Hey, before we get started with our special guest, Peter Hamby, uh, I want to thank all the listeners of the podcast. Uh, sometime yesterday, we passed 33 million downloads. We really, really appreciate this. And uh, again, want to encourage you, if you have not yet done so, to join Bulwark Plus. This is not the only podcast, by the way, at the Bulwark. We have the Next Level Podcast. We have the Secret Podcast. We have Mona Charon's Outstanding Beg to Differ. Uh, and of course, if you sign up, you get the Morning Shots newsletter and the Triad newsletter. Um, as we start off today, though, we have some uh, we have some uh, breaking news. We have some audio from, of all people, uh, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. Let's let's go to the let's go to the audio. Let it be said that any president who cheats our institutions shall be impeached because impeachment is not about punishment. Impeachment is about cleansing the office. Impeachment is about restoring honor and integrity to the office. When you start using your office and you're acting in a way that hurts people, you've committed a high crime. Oh, shit. That's the wrong soundbite, isn't it? That's 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 the old Lindsey Graham. That's from that's from the 1990s. The 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 new Lindsey Graham is the one who is actually huddling with the Trump lawyers. He and Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, all of them jurors who took the oath to be completely objective about all of this. We're actually meeting behind closed doors to help the Trump lawyers strategize. This is actually Lindsey Graham from last night. Yeah, see it among. Huh? <laughs> oh, jeez. All right, Peter Hamby. Hey, thanks for uh, joining me. Appreciate it very much. Um, Peter Hamby uh, is the is the host of Snapchat's Good Luck America, which we need a good deal of, and a contributing writer for Vanity Fair. So, uh, good good morning. How are you? I'm good, Charlie. Greetings from California. I have a list of all sorts of things um, on, on on my pad here, and to each one of them, my my question is, what is wrong with people? But um, let's <laughs> let's let's start with um, before we get started with it with the impeachment trial, because obviously that's what everybody wants to talk about. And I want to talk about your piece where you compare uh, Donald Trump to Sarah Palin, because I want mm-hmm. you you to convince me that you're right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can also talk about Mario Cuomo and a variety of other things. And, if, and 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 if I actually start day drinking, we can talk about the Lincoln Project. But but, <laughs> that, but that's only if I start day drinking by the end of the, uh, the 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 podcast. So you used to work in South Carolina, and you know Nikki Haley pretty well, right? Yeah, I actually met Nikki Haley when she was a state legislator. Um, she uh, way back, back in two thousand seven, uh, when I was living down there for CNN covering that presidential primary. Yeah, I've known her for a while. So there is this absolutely fantastic piece uh, in Politico by Tim Alberta, long, deep dive into Nikki Haley that describes her background and the way she's gone back and forth with Donald Trump and then includes what appears to be uh, some comments breaking with 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 Donald Trump, where she says it was really a, a terrible it was a mistake. And let me see if I can if I, if I can scroll down to exactly what she said, whether she's really the prodigal uh, daughter these days. Uh, this is the way the Hill describes it. Stunning remarks, breaking with uh, Trump, uh, believes that Trump let us down. We need to acknowledge he let us down. He went down a path he shouldn't have, and we shouldn't have followed him. We shouldn't have listened to him, and we can't let that ever happen again. 
So your your thoughts, you you know a lot better than me. I say I'm 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 tempted to be all cynical and snarky and say, God, we've been here before. I mean, you know, two weeks ago she was saying, Oh, give him a break. So give give me your take on Nikki Haley and, and Nikki Haley's latest latest iteration of being critical of Trump. The iteration is the key, latest iteration is the key phrase there. I mean, I I texted a couple South Carolina Republicans after the Capitol Hill riot and said I feel like if Nikki runs in 2024, she's just, uh, again, just caught between a rock and a hard place. Like, I don't, you know, we'll talk more about my ideas about comparing Trump and Sarah Palin mm-hmm. and his, his you know, personality fading in the next few years. But, you know, currently you have a uh, Josh Hawley side of the party and a, a smaller Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney side of the party. And, you know, I don't even know if you still call yourself an actual Republican. No. That side of the party that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah, right. Where's where Nikki Haley's uh, lane here? I mean, her fellow South Carolinian who we just heard, Lindsey Graham, uh, has baffled and befuddled and confounded uh, liberals and people in the media for going all in on Donald Trump. However, um, this is one thing I've learned about Lindsey Graham from living in South Carolina. His antenna is always, 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 especially when it's around an election, um, near the base of South Carolina. And obviously, Lindsey Graham has flouted Republicans in the past on immigration, uh, on you know uh, military things, like his cross cross paths with like the libertarians in his state, but. Um, he knows where South Carolina Republicans are. And so he <laughs> feels way more aligned with them than Nikki Haley does right now, uh, if you're thinking about a yeah. presidential primary in a few years. So, you know, she has really gone from, you know, Bulwark listeners probably know this and remember this well, mm-hmm. but endorsing Marco Rubio in 2016 before the South Carolina Republican primary when she was the kingmaker trashing Donald Trump at the time to, you know, in a rather tortured way, then showing up on the floor of the Republican convention in Cleveland, applauding Donald Trump to becoming his UN ambassador, right? She followed the path of a lot of conventional Republicans at the time, but then leaving. And like, she's always, in other words, just tried to maintain a little bit of a safe distance from Donald Trump while, you know, at times being critical and not being critical. And this sounds again, like, what are you doing? Um, Like, she just kind of goes where the wind blows a lot of times. Um, And she has had very good personal political instincts, but she listens to herself. Um, Yeah. That that comes. She's not not Josh Hawley. Who's surrounded by a bunch of like advisors telling him how to be a conservative. Like she talks to John Lerner, her pollster and not that many other people and does her own thing. So that's, that separates her a little bit from some other politicians, I think. That's consistent with with the the, the portrait that Tim Alberta you know paints that she's she he's he writes that she's definitely running in twenty twenty four. She's obviously got very she's got uh, very set ambitions to do that. Has not yet figured out this whole question of the lane. Doesn't have you know a firm uh, you know ideological compass necessarily. But I, I guess the, the the problem that we've we've seen with her is that every time she kind of you know you know sticks her head up above the foxhole um, and gets incoming fire there's a, there's blowback there's backlash uh, she backs off within 24 yeah. hours so right. there's there's a, there's an expiration date on all of this which which again um is probably going to leave her sitting out on an island somewhere yeah i think that's true and look i i do want to say like the idea of lanes 
uh, in primaries, like Donald Trump kind of broke yeah. that. Bernie Sanders kind of broke that. Like it's a, it's a definitely a little bit of a media construct, but you know, I tend to think that Do- Donald Trump will still be influential, but yeah. very good politicians bend their electorates to their will with a message that is compelling and acknowledge that times change. So like perhaps to her credit, if she continues to say, put distance between herself and Donald Trump and say, I'm going to be a slightly different kind of Republican, follow me. Like, cool, do that. But that the issue is she hasn't really over the last four years demonstrated that she's willing to, you know, swim in a single direction. Yeah, (laughs) Um, So maybe, you know, Maybe she'll continue down this path and be a not necessarily like a never Trump kind of Republican, but like, hey, we need to put him in the rear view. Here's what I believe. I don't believe in riots. I don't believe in like killing people <laughs> on Capitol Hill, you know, but here's what I do believe. And here's my experience and my vision. And maybe maybe that will stick. Uh, and I'm, I'm open to that. But again, like, uh, you know, she definitely um, has a sort of zigzag. Yeah, I, there, there, w- one line uh, from from this uh, this Politico article, uh, Corey Lewandowski, the former Trump campaign manager, has been overheard advising South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem to run against Haley as the hotter, Trumpier, real American governor. Oh, God. Oh, this, God. Is, this is an indication. Well, in the in the story, though, um, the first I would say maybe a, a third of it is 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 not at all flattering to her because. Yeah, it's Tim Alberta talking with her after the election, and she's rationalizing not pushing back on Donald Trump's lies about losing the election by saying that he he believes this. He that somehow that that because Donald Trump believes his lies, they're not really lies and she can't do anything about it. It's it's very interesting. It's 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 that whole uh Donald Trump as toddler that somehow that that if he thinks that the sky is purple, then then to him the sky is purple, and and there's nothing morally wrong with him saying that the sky is purple and trying to convince people that the sky is purple. And um, you know, it's quite frankly, it's not a great look for Haley. Yeah, um, I don't think it is either. Real quick, though, Charlie, what do you think about Char- Christy Noem running against uh, running as the hotter, Trumpier, real American governor? Because you live in real America. Uh, well, no, we're not. We're not South Dakota here. I, I don't know whether anybody even knows her here, but it is interesting that that's the way these people think. These people think about it. I don't know. I, I would think if, if so many people weren't dying in South Dakota of, of coronavirus, it would be more plausible. <laughs> but I don't know. But it is yeah. interesting that that's that's that is that is the the formula, right? That um, hotter, Trumpier, real American governor. Yeah, so, I mean, the the Trump people uh, definitely believe in the you know, idea of celebrities, uh, having power. And I, you know, I do too. I mean, I, I, I live and breathe social media every day. I understand that identity can be more important than substance. Well, <laughs> that's days. right. It is. Unfortunately. Um, you know, uh, and Noam, I, I, you've seen this like on Fox news, like sh- she would run these tourism commercials for South Dakota constantly, not political. It'd be like, but it looked like a political ad. There'd be these gleaming shots of like a bucolic, you know, South Dakota prairie. And then it would end with Nikki Christy Noem being like, I'm South Dakota's Christy Noem. Like, come see us. And like, mm-hmm. it was like a, you know, if you're just a grandma watching Fox News, like all of a sudden, Christy well, Noem's right. name ID that's like based on nothing other than, uh, oh, South Dakota looks nice and she looks nice. And, um, you know, she's not. 
I, I would never, I, I would never underestimate that. I, th- I think this is the one thing that, that I think political political wonks tend to to un- undervalue, which is, you know, what are those voters seeing on television every night in their living room? And looks matter. And I'm sorry. And and also, identity and celebrity do matter a lot more than policy substance. I mean, this, the the era in which candidates prepare for running by sitting in a room with a bunch of uh, PhDs working on policy white papers um that's 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 gone okay so i want to talk about speaking of which we're going to we're going to dial back to this because because we're going to come back to sarah palin who feels like sort of patient zero in all of this but we, <laughs> let, let's just talk about um, impeachment for a moment yesterday um it's been a short trial i think we know what the result is going to be um i was very impressed with the democrats i was skeptical about the, the trial i thought they they did a very a powerful job. And then they wrapped up yesterday. And as I wrote in my newsletter today, I I thought they really went to the heart of what this trial is about. It's not about removal. It's about disqualification and it's about deterrence. And Jamie Raskin, I think, you know, honed in, zeroed in right on that point right here. Let's play that soundbite from Jamie Raskin. My dear colleagues, is there any political leader in this room who believes that if he is ever allowed by the Senate to get back into the Oval Office, Donald Trump would stop inciting violence to get his way? Would you bet the lives of more police officers on that? Would you bet the safety of your family on that? Would you bet the future of your democracy on that? President Trump declared his conduct totally appropriate. So if he gets back into office and it happens again, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. So, Peter Hamby, your thoughts about the the impeachment trial the last uh, three days? There are times when I am grateful that I, I worked at CNN for 10 years. I think that's when I first talked to you, maybe during a Scott Walker thing back in the day. But yeah, I get to watch things like this a little bit more as a civilian because I'm not like a day-to-day beat reporter in DC. And um, I found it incredibly compelling in a way that I did not the original impeachment trial for a few reasons. One, um, the subject at hand is emotionally much more cut and dry. Um, uh, it it just packs a punch, right? Like we we know everyone knows what happened and everyone I, I give them great credit for showing a video in the on the first day like that just that felt to me like I tweeted like oh we're like they're showing a sizzle reel at the impeachment trial but in the social media era like video um, is the coin of the realm and we saw this really haunting on the ground footage that you know even on its own if the presentation ended that day would be powerful um, to yeah. Uh, Raskin is really talented. And that is the consensus from all of the Democrats that I talked to. Um, You know, as a, how do I say this? I I don't mean to diminish him in this way, but like as a performer. Yes, uh, no, right. More than Adam Schiff, who felt very much like a sort of, you know, boring, dry, like district attorney, you know, or like a tax lawyer, like Raskin, you know, who, as we know, like recently lost a son and and choked up talking about his family, but it didn't seem, it just felt very real. In yeah. That. You can see like- Made it riveting. 
Yeah, and like, and like, I guess Pelosi makes makes a designation as who's going to be the impeachment managers. But like, you can tell like he he was probably fired up, and Pelosi was like, "Go get it, man!" Like I like you, I can see you really care about this. So the presentation has been scrupulous. Um, the evidence has been really moving. I think that any rational person watching that would have to say that um, were if Donald Trump did not exist. <laughs> the Capitol Hill riot would not have happened and five people would be alive today. Um, I, you know, I also don't like saying this. I think Republicans, um, by relying on the excuse that Trump can't be, you know, you know, convicted out of office, it just gives them a convenient excuse to not pay attention to that. Um, sure. You know, the idea of incitement as a strict, um, you know, letter of the law, like, did Donald Trump say, go to the Capitol and break in? Like, no. And that's the sort of like loophole that Republicans are going to lean on, right? Uh, right. In addition to um, saying you can't yeah. convict Yeah. If, if you, if you want to find an excuse not to do it, you will be able to find an excuse. You will say, well, he said these words, you know, in that, in that word salad that he spoke, he said the words peaceful. He didn't actually say break down the windows. Uh, He's already out of office. There's, there's enough of a fig leaf. If you want to dodge the up or down vote on, on his conduct, which of course they all do. Right. I mean, they all, they all understand what happens here. I mean, there's 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 really not that much of a surprise. And I thought that was part of the strength of, of the House, that they didn't just focus on January 6th. They just talked about the entire context of the lie and the stoking of the anger and the building of it and his ties with these people and how he knew it. And then, of course, the, the really deadly stuff, the fact his failure to respond, his dereliction of duty when it was ongoing. It's, it's compelling, but but there's enough wiggle room. Yep. That if people don't want to draw a line, they won't draw a line. Yeah. And you have to wonder if, you know, I know that I don't know how this would ever happen in the Senate if there was some sort of secret ballot in the way there was with the Liz Cheney leadership vote, <laughs> like what the actual outcome would be. You know, um, there are certainly people like your pal in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, who are like true believers now, uh, who will probably vote to acquit either way. But you, you have to think there's at least you know, other than the five or six public votes for a conviction, there's right. got to be like 10 more in there somewhere who <laughs> are just afraid to vote. Oh, I'm not, I'm, that's, uh, there's no, there's no question about yeah. it. I mean, you know, but, but yeah, there are, there is that group of about, there's a group of about 10 of the true believers. And unfortunately, yeah. uh, like, Ron, Ron John from Wisconsin has become one of the true believers. I mean, oh, he's, he's, he's well, there with Tommy Tuberville. Yeah. But like, like Richard Shelby also, you know, another Alabama guy, like, what does he really think? Come on. Like you, like he's retiring, you know, you are a like just lifelong Senator. Like you don't actually think this way. Do you, man? Um, no. uh, th- th- those are the types that I'm, I'm curious about. Well, they just want it to go away. I mean, that's what they're thinking. They're, they're thinking, look, the easy vote is to say is, is to vote not guilty and then just hope that he fades away. Well, there's that. And, um, and they can vote not guilty and say, as we mentioned on the, either the incitement article or, you can't convict a former president, but then turn around when asked about it, maybe down the road. I really, I, I hate what Donald Trump did. I'm glad he's gone, but I didn't think there was ground right. to X, Y, Z. Like that's, that's, it's just a very convenient political strategy um, for them. 
Okay, which then raises the question about whether this changes anything. And 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 I think your point about the fact that they this time around they understand that it is a performance. They understand that there's two juries that they're talking to the jury uh, of the Senate, which is rigged and fixed, and they're not going to win. But there's also the jury of public opinion out there. And uh, I, I I have to say, look, you know um, how hard it is to. I mean, I I don't know. I, I said this on the podcast the other day. Um, the, these guys must have had some help putting this presentation together because, as as you know, standing up there and making hours and hours and hours of presentation and then skillfully using little you know sound bites and bites of video that just doesn't happen. I mean, somebody somebody oh. scripted this out with a great deal of skill. Yeah, um, it almost like the like I don't have great faith one that senators and members of Congress are good performers and entertainers, which is a, a very, they're, not, right? they're absolutely not. And the fact that they were like, everyone is on message. No one like went off on like tangents and they really have leaned into using video on the floor of the Senate. Yeah. It's like me radical. Like that, it, that is, it, they don't usually do like, usually it's like, here's a chart. Here's my like usual, like, you know, a hobby horse from back home. Um, like, but everything has been, it's almost like they hired the people who did Biden's digital convention, which was very yeah, right and, and got them to produce it. It's, it's really been a show. Okay. I'm glad you said that because I really did think the same thing that this, this thing is like way above their normal, their normal yeah. skill set. So it raises the question, going back to your point before though. So does this make a difference? Does this change public opinion in such a way that, that if in fact these Republicans, even the ones who vote not guilty, come out and say, yeah, this, this conduct was bad. Is that enough to basically put an end to Donald Trump's um, viability politically? And, and I guess I'm also thinking, like, what else is going to happen? Will there be grand jury investigations? Will there be 9-11 style commissions? Uh, what happens with the trial, with the investigation down in, in Atlanta, Georgia, which is ongoing? Uh, will there be civil lawsuits? Because there's, there's a lot there. And I, I, just, I just don't think that this is the end because you have these ongoing criminal trials of the people. So this is, this thing is going to have a much longer tail than I think the Ukraine impeachment did. So give me your sense though. Does this, was this enough to change public opinion and the trajectory of Trump's political future? So first of all, the only time Trump like gained popularity from, uh, the, like a neutral spot during his presidency was during the first impeachment trial. Like <laughs> people didn't like that uh, in part because people didn't quite understand it. It got lost in a lot of sort of, you know, executive power mumbo jumbo that like we, you know, a lot of people in our world understood it. I don't think, I think the press was obsessed with it. Um, but you know, like even like the TV ratings didn't bear out that the American public was let alone the polls. This, as I said before, much more visceral, much more simple. Whether the conviction is there or not, um, the riot is forever associated with Donald Trump. Now, I'm not going to go so far as Karl Rove said yesterday, I believe, which is that he can't run again because he's already too tarnished. Um, mm -hmm. We don't know. Like, uh, I think the important thing, and I, I wrote about this in the in the Vanity Fair piece, is time. It's a variety of things. It's it's not just this, it's that he has been functionally deplatformed from Twitter in particular, which cannot be 
understated how powerful it is. Donald Trump was on Twitter, I think going back to like 2008. Um, and uh, now without this impeachment trial was already kind of like, we might disagree on this. I think he was already kind of fading from our uh, attention. And I live out in California where things aren't as mm-hmm. followed closely here, but like COVID and vaccines feel much more at the front of the public mm-hmm. mind. Two, there's what you said, which is, we don't know what's going to come next. Like, what does um, the Attorney General of New York <laughs> have on right. Donald Trump? Right. What are they doing to investigate Donald Trump in um, New York City financial crimes? What do the feds have anything? Anyway, if if Donald Trump is to be sullied enough to not run again, we still have to see what the next couple of years will hold. I do right. think right. Donald Trump will enjoy... Um, maybe playing in the Virginia governor's race in November and certainly the midterms next year, trying to fly in and make endorsements and primaries and that sort of thing. But again, I just think a, a Trump broke a lot of rules, but one of the rules of politics is that I think part, both parties rarely kind of look back. I mean, I think people want someone new and different. That doesn't mean that like Mitt Romney is going to be the nominee or the party is going to go back to the way it was, but it's what I said earlier, like, Someone is, I think, going to come along that will capture the attention of Republican voters, the media, um, who isn't as damaged and perhaps legally threatened as this guy who, you know, and, and that person should make the argument if, it, if they do end up running against Trump. When this person was president, you lost the White House, you know, you lost the Senate. Um, and you never had the house and you were the left office, the least popular president, um, in modern times. He barely made it. It was George W. Bush, but Trump came out at the end. Just the Bush. So, uh, you know, that's a compelling argument, I think. Yeah, you would, you would, you would think so. Okay. So one of the things I wanted to talk to was get a very deep dive, a uh, long article in Vanity Fair comparing Sarah Palin and Donald Trump, and uh, you correct me if I'm, I'm getting the thesis wrong, is just this reminding people what a big deal Sarah Palin was. Now, everybody thought that Sarah Palin was inevitable, that she would sweep everything before her and all the analysis and everything, and then but she just faded and fizzled, and you suggest that that may be Donald Trump's fate. Is, is that a fair statement of, yeah. of your yeah. thesis? Yeah, so I think... The biggest affliction of the political media is an obsession with the present, with mm-hmm. what's happening right now. CNN has a banner up on TV every 30 seconds that says, happening now. Um, and with when you are so stuck in the moment, you forget to lift your head up, look around, understand that things change, um, that uh, politics is complicated, that... Um, most people aren't following this stuff day in and day out. Um, so there's that. Uh, two, um, Sarah Palin was really the first national political figure candidate to fuse um, grievance politics uh, with you know white cultural identity and pure celebrity. Um, those three things combined made her very powerful and made her attentional uh, powers um, overwhelming to the point where, as I mentioned in the piece, um, you know, she every time her face appeared on Fox News or MSNBC, ratings jumped fifteen percent just mm-hmm. by being on TV. Mm-hmm. 
know, Andrea Mitchell did her MSNBC show from a Barnes and Noble in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Palin was doing a book tour. <laughs> she was like on Fox. She was everywhere. People forget how in your face and always on Sarah Palin was not just in 2008, but from 2008 all the way until the Iowa State Fair in 2011, she was threatening to run for president back then. And Steve Bannon was pulling some strings for her at that point. She really was inescapable. New York Magazine put her on the cover of, of the magazines, calling it like, you know, the Sarah Palin industry and uh, Barbara Walters and Katie Couric. And everyone wanted a piece. And, and it wasn't just I got in a fight with someone on Twitter the other day. They were like, well, you know, the first person was really Newt Gingrich and someone else. Well, the first person was really Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. They were on Entertainment Tonight. They weren't on Access Hollywood. They weren't on the cover of Us Weekly. Like she was bigger than politics in a way. She was an international celebrity in a way that Donald Trump is and in a way that Donald Trump leveraged on his way to the White House and in the White House. And so... All of that being said, the parallels are obvious enough. I think she broke up the door for Trump. Is that, you know, without social media, like his media environment looks a lot more like 2009, 10, 11 than it does 2021. And he's really more codependent on media attention um, than uh, he was before he was deplatformed. And when you're not at the front of the public mind, when you were deprived of power, um, you know, Public attitudes change, attention shifts. And like, this is a very boring, maybe obvious argument, but like the passage no. of time is very powerful. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a good, it's, well, let me tell you a story that actually uh, reinforces your point here, because I remember, and I'm pretty sure it was in late 2009, uh, Sarah Palin came to Wisconsin and she mm-hmm. was a speaker for an event for Wisconsin Right to Life. And the turnout was so huge, they had to move it into one of the big barns at Wisconsin State Fair out in West Dallas. And I was the master of ceremonies. I had to introduce her. And so I was sitting on stage, sitting right behind her when she was speaking. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, if she runs, and I was, I already was becoming quite skeptical, but I was there um, thinking this woman would just sweep the primaries before her. There's no way that Mitt Romney would be able to compete with her because she had that, that's that, that celebrity. She had that charisma. The grassroots was there for her. And, you know, so I was one of those that thought, oh, my God, this is this is the woman. And, of course, I thought it would be dangerous because I didn't think she was qualified, but I did think she was inevitable. So then fast forward to the next time that she's in West Dallas that I was aware of, which is right before the right before the Wisconsin primary in 2016. And she gave what is universally regarded as the worst political speech anyone had ever heard. In (laughs) In fact, it was so bad. That the 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 most relevant debate was um, drugs, stroke, something. What the hell happened to her? Um, clearly not the person that she was earlier, or maybe this is the same person without the speechwriters. I still don't know the answer to all of that. But let me just say that the the, the two objections to your piece that I've heard, okay, the 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 comparison why Trump is not going to be Palin, is number one, Palin was never president of the United States. Okay, Mm -hmm. so she never had that. And the second is that Trump has had we're now 10 years later Mm -hmm. and that the that we've basically had the the crazification of the Republican base has advanced for that 10 years that, in fact, uh, the 
the, the the fever swamps are are much broader and deeper than they were for her. She was she was certainly a product of all of that, but it wasn't as dominant as it is right now. So you have all of the things that, that Sarah Palin had going for her. You have the presidency, and you have the fact that the Republican base, um, you know, maybe the crazy was still a recessive gene back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, two thousand eleven. It is certainly a dominant gene now. Yeah, and those are both like. Uh- fair strong objections i just and and is the flip side of the president argument is what we just talked about it's like yeah he was president and that makes him more inescapable um and more credible in a way uh it also brings a ton it exposes what he did um for better or worse and uh it exposes him to a legal threat so there's that two yeah the the internet environment um, has has changed significantly. I mean, the the conservative media that rallied to Sarah Palin's defense back then was, you know, like bloggers. It was like Red mm-hmm. State, um, things like that, or you know, Matthew Continetti and the Weekly Standard. I mean, the the organs uh, that we now think of today as almost never Trump uh, uh, organs were then, like in a lot of ways, pro Palin. Now it's like. First, like social media, these platforms have let their, um, you know, platforms and audiences grow uncontrollably and without regulation. And that's created like its whole and a whole other set. Yeah. Of However, the, the point of the piece was just to sort of like put out an argument against the Trump 2024 absolutism that followed um, Election Day. I remember... Sure. You know, on ele- on election week, <laughs> during election week, you know, that was the dominant thing on 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 the dominant take on Twitter among, you know, a lot of re- Republicans and a lot of reporters was like, well, the, whatever, Trump can run again. Trump's going to run. Trump's absolutely going to be the most powerful person mm-hmm. in the Republican Party. Maybe. But like, maybe not. You know, like he we just don't know. Like the right. And this goes back to my gripe with the. Um, the media's obsession with right now being forever. We just don't know. Like when Trump lost the election, we didn't know that Twitter would literally cut off both of his arms a few days later. Okay, like, can we just stop, stop with that? I, I am I, I am amazed at how effective the Twitter ban has been on him. I really, in, in, you know, before that happened, you know, people said we should, you know, he, they should be kicked, he should be kicked off of Twitter. And I think my knee-jerk reaction was, yeah, well, that's not going to stop him. I mean, that's not going to change. He'll just find some other way of expressing himself. But it's been really amazing the degree to yeah. which it has lowered his profile. Are you surprised by that about how 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 dramatic the you know the the, the post Twitter Trump world has been? How the, I, the yeah, I am surprised. Like I, just my own um, mind share being deprived of, of Trump every day is there. And like, I, I am not one of these people who like obsessively followed every one of his tweets. Um, you know, that, partly because that wasn't my job and I was relieved that I didn't have to, but yeah. I was also in the camp where, um, I was a little bit like, like Tim Miller, uh, in that I had the idea that it's, it's a difficult call. And I say this as someone who like works at a tech platform that's larger than Twitter, um, to remove a world leader from the platform. Um, like that's tough, but um, it happened. And I, I, my, I thought what was going to happen was Twitter had already made kind of apparent that once Trump was no longer president as a policy, if he viol- if he violated their terms of service, if he violated their 
policies around hate speech, violence, et cetera, they would remove him. So I was sort of thinking that was going to happen eventually, that he would just violate right, right. service and get kicked off or banned or whatever. Um, so yeah, I am surprised that Twitter just kind of went ahead and did it. It reveals for better or worse that the uh, executives at tech companies uh, wield a ton of power and can make just individual decisions overnight. That can't be underestimated. It also reveals that um, Facebook is rather toothless in that respect. Mark Zuckerberg could do a lot of things that he isn't doing. Um, and then too, yeah, it's just like, oh, wow, uh, Trump isn't, in our face all the time, all the time, every day. And it's just a, it makes the last four years feel, uh, you know, just like a very difficult relationship. And you like come up for air and you're like, Oh, wow. <laughs> it feels like time is elongating itself that, that, that now it's not. I mean, like, for example, this morning when I was reading about Nikki Haley, I almost had this I had this instinct, which was like, well, wait, wait till the Trump's you know, whittle Trump tweets about this. The tweets are coming and they were No, they're not. There will be no. We actually can think about this for a couple of hours. We can actually, maybe there'll be a news cycle. Where we can yeah. discuss this before yeah. we have to, you know, be inundated by another, you know, rage tweet storm. Yeah, there, there. Even, even when re reporters and news organizations made the decision, we don't have to cover every single thing Trump tweets. Like it didn't matter. Like they aren't the decision makers. Like Trump injected himself into the public consciousness with a single tweet, no matter what. Now, yeah, he's just like, say it's twenty twenty two, and he's flying to, you know. Uh, Florida to endorse in the Senate race, like that'll be a story, but like it's mostly dependent on the news media showing up and covering it and writing about it and talking about it. And then like after that, it's just not as much of a so, thing. <laughs> so that, that, that's the other thing that I guess I did, going back to the impeachment just for a moment, yeah. the, if, if Republicans ever wanted an off ramp, this is so perfect for them because first of all, the case is so overwhelming, but also they have nothing to lose uh, from, from this. I mean, they don't have to worry about his tweets anymore. But they might worry about him, you know, in the in the future, you know, coming out against them in a primary. But but also he can't do anything for them anymore. He can't uh, he can't you know, appoint any judges or cut any taxes or do anything that there's there's no political downside to it. And of course, they're sitting there watching what is one of the worst defenses ever. While you and I were talking, I just briefly looked over my shoulder to look at, the, at, at uh, Twitter because he, while we are speaking for people who are going to be listening to this over the weekend, the the uh, uh, the Trump lawyers are making their presentation. I see Philip Bump from the Washington Post saying this is even worse than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whataboutism, the montages of Democrats saying fight, relitigating the Charlottesville thing. I mean, it is apparently a complete clusterfuck. But again, it won't matter because to paraphrase our colleague Sarah Longwell, these lawyers you know, woke up this morning knowing that they could walk into uh, the Senate chamber and basically just stand there with their middle fingers raised and say, suck it, bitches. And they'll win the case, right? I mean, yeah. they're, they're, the, the Republicans are still going to vote to acquit, but it is they—they're certainly not making it any any easier for these Republicans that are just going to have to put their heads down and go, "Okay, shit, we got to do that. We we have to eat the sandwich again." Yeah, I think. And the, the other point is that Trump like didn't really have a legal team until like the week before, <laughs> so like these guys are just sort of coming in without doing homework and riffing. I mean, the the first. Uh, opening arguments from um what's his name Bruce Castro were just so atrocious someone I saw a tweet that was like that's like you get called on in your like zoom class and like you don't know what to talk about 
like talk about the constitution. <laughs> I have I have nightmares like that, you know. Yeah. Pushed out on stage. But I think <laughs> a long a long term consequence of this is like if there's no compelling defense of Trump and it just boils down to like unprepared whataboutism. Um, you know, it's not just like LOL, nothing matters, haha, they can they'll win no matter what. I mean, like this is a minority political um strategy. Mm-hmm. There just aren't I, I know Trump got 74 million votes. Mm-hmm. I know he can win again and I know the party is forever broken. At the same time, like as a means of obtaining power uh in this country, like it's just not a majority way of thinking in any yeah. way. And I know that there are institutions, I know that there's the electoral college, I know that there's gerrymandering, and I know that the conservative media bubble is very powerful, but like it is, to me, it doesn't strike me as sustainable in a way that will allow Republicans to gain or keep power. I think Mitch McConnell believes that. Um, and you know, I think that a lot of powerful Republicans and donors believe that. And um, this, just to bring the conversation back around, like there, ha- if someone wants to be a Republican president again, I just don't think the path to power is imitating Donald Trump plainly. There has to be some kind of added charisma, wrinkle, something, change in, and change yeah. in tone. What aboutism gets a lot of attention in a in a relatively small cocoon of Americans, and I just don't think Republicans can win by just continuing on that way. Okay. So two, two last very briefly in the time we have left, just two other non non Trumpian points here that, that uh, I, I know, I know that you've commented on, but I, I feel the need to, to, to bring it up. Uh, the burst, this is uh, the bursting of the Andrew Cuomo bubble. Um, the stories that we're now hearing about the possible cover up about the number of of uh, COVID positive cases that were transferred into nursing homes, um, juxtaposed with the media love affair with Andrew Cuomo. I mean, he went out and he had a book and did he get an Emmy or something like that? Uh, the, the, the Andrew Cuomo luster um, is speaking of lusters fading. Um, have we reached the expiration date on, on Andrew Cuomo as uh, here uh, as America's governor? Uh, it was, yeah. You know, we had to endure that for almost a year. Um, People forget, first of all, like this exposes the fallacy of letting your politics get in the way of science, data, facts, and your beliefs about COVID. I mean, I am not a fan of shut-in New Yorkers, you know, mask shaming people on Twitter and like pointing fingers at Florida and red states. Like there's a lot about COVID and how it spreads that we don't know. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, policy responses at the state level, like aren't inherently good or bad. And what we, we need a lot of time to look back and determine <laughs> what worked. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cuomo thing is remarkable because there are a lot of democratic governors because of what I just mentioned, who were held up at the beginning of COVID because they weren't Donald Trump, uh, Gavin Newsom, um, Jay Inslee, actually a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cuomo, uh, the Cuomo thing was ridiculous because Cuomo in a lot of ways is like a mini Trump. Like he berates the media. He's secretive. Um, it's kind of a weirdo. Uh, if you've ever covered him up close, like not Mr. Charisma. And uh, 
he, because of his relationship with his brother on CNN and CNN's like new devotion to being talk radio in prime time, like it was just silly. Like it was just entertainment. It was fluff. And it, it resistance liberals flocked to him because he wasn't Donald Trump. He had these yeah. things which were much more rooted in facts and numbers. Um, but, you know, if you hold up a politician like like as a doctor, like it's just inevitably going to get exposed. And his um, the state, his own state attorney general has revealed that they undercounted the number of nursing home deaths. You know, investigation that came out um, on Thursday revealed that there were more people readmitted to nursing homes who had COVID from hospitals than previously. Yeah. Like, and again, this is where Cuomo is like Trump again, like refuses to acknowledge mistakes, refuses to say, I'm sorry, blame somebody else. It's never his fault. Like the fact that progressives and liberals held this guy up as a, you know, um, the patron saying of like stopping COVID is ridiculous. Speaking of falling from grace, might as well mention this, the Lincoln, the Lincoln project, uh, Steve Schmidt, uh, the subject of this deep dive AP report, and I think also the uh, New York Magazine about the sexual harassment charges against uh, John Weaver, which he's basically acknowledged, and raising questions about leadership and about what they knew and when they knew it and where the money went. Um, this is another one of those stories where, and I, I got to say, this is this one's tough because, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the Never Trump movement are going to be tarnished with all of that. We're not part of that I, uh, at, at all. But but we were alive. We were we were in the foxhole, and mm-hmm. and wow, it, it 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 certainly feels like they're in crisis at the moment. One of the founders of Lincoln Project, Rick Wilson, wrote a book, I think, or had a saying that like everything Trump touches dies. Um, the Lincoln Project is sort of part of that now. I mean, they because mm-hmm. they chose to um, do battle with him on his terms on Twitter with like like very slashing personal attacks. Um, you know, they're a little bit like Icarus. Uh, and the problems I had with the Lincoln Project weren't necessarily about the fact that they were making a lot of money off of resistance moms who like their ads. Um, and, you know, the Weaver stuff is terrible. Um, and, and as a side note, like it's it, a lot of people in Republican politics kind of had heard whispers about John Weaver and the stuff for a very long time. So it's very difficult to imagine that Steve Schmidt who has worked at the highest levels of Republican politics, um, including uh, alongside Weaver at times, didn't know about these things. Um, I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair last year about a couple of Democratic groups who were doing um, testing around persuasion advertising, which has really never been tested in politics. And they ran a bunch of experiments seeing which messages actually changed minds, which advertisements actually changed minds. And the kinds of ads that directly attacked Donald Trump um, calling him names, associating him with Putin, making fun of his weight, making fun of his health, actually caused a ton of backlash. Hmm. In other words, uh, they drove people into their corners. If you were already convinced that you hate Donald Trump, you gave money to the Lincoln Project. But if you were an on-the-fence Republican voter or like a persuadable voter, um, you know, maybe you went to church, whatever, those ads really drove you back in your corner. Um, and the Lincoln Project essentially became associated with, you know, another one of Trump's enemies like CNN or the New York Times. So, like, if you saw one of their ads and you were a like on the fence voter in Florida, um, chances are you went screaming in the other direction. Not to mention the fact that Democrats, the voters they needed to were 
kind of low information voters, people of color who weren't on Twitter and seeing these ads in the first place. The kinds of ads that did work, frankly, were the Republican voters against Trump ads where you saw first person testimonials from uh, Republicans that look like me recorded on cell phone video, sort of low grade production value. That stuff actually really works. So, you know, not only does the Lincoln Project have a ton of challenges, it's hard to see them actually lasting now, um, even though they've made millions of dollars and all purchased new homes off of <laughs> this group. Um, but, you know, I it's I haven't seen a reasonable case that their ads actually change a lot of minds. And that's, yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. That is unfortunate. You know, there's a certain just the 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 ads that make certain people feel good about it. But uh, they they did some good stuff. But I do think that there's that moment where we all jumped the shark. But and 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 maybe the fact that they did engage Trump on his in his own terms that there's some weird dynamic where they became what they hated, in, in, in including in in terms of the way they handled the money. It's very interesting watching George Conway, who's broken very badly mm. against them. In fact, he was the one who called them out for screen, potentially illegally screenshotting mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer Horn's social media. He had a tweet saying, this is a violation of federal law. You need to take it down. And he's pounded them. I see that our good friend Tom Nichols has uh, stepped down as an unpaid advisor to the group. So you kind of have a feeling that people are backing away. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't think this story is over, so I don't want to prejudge at all, yeah. Yeah. but, um, I do think that Steve Schmidt has uh, has a lot of explaining to do, and I think there's going to be a lot more accountability. Peter Hamby, thank you so much. This has been absolutely delightful. This is the first time you've been on the podcast, and I appreciate your time very, very much. Bring me back, Charlie. I love it. Thank you for talking. We will, and thank you for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday, and we will do this all over again.